0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to THA periprosthetic fractures and hallux valgus, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with THA periprosthetic fractures. And the first question reads, While performing a cementless total hip arthroplasty in a healthy 68-year-old female, the surgeon notes an audible change while impacting the final brooch. The brooch is removed, and a 1 cm longitudinal crack originating at the calcar is visualized. Bone stock is otherwise preserved. What is the next best step in management? And the choices are 1. Insert standard press-fit stem and make the patient weight-bearing as tolerated postoperatively. 2. Apply cerclage wire, insert standard press-fit stem, and then make the patient weight-bearing as tolerated postoperatively. 3. Insert long, porous, coated stem and make the patient touchdown weight-bearing postoperatively. 4. Insert long cemented stem and make the patient weight-bearing as tolerated postoperatively. And 5. Insert a long porous-coated stem, augments with cortical allograft and cerclage wires, and make the patient touchdown weight-bearing postoperatively. So the patient has sustained an intraoperative proximal femur fracture and should be managed with placement of cerclage wire to prevent propagation of the fracture, insertion of the press-fit stem as planned, followed by weight-bearing as tolerated postoperatively. Intraoperative periprosthetic femur fractures occur in 1-18% to of primary total hip arthroplasties. Risk factors include the use of minimally invasive techniques, press-fit cementless stems, revision surgeries, female sex, metabolic bone disease, Paget disease, and intraoperative technical errors. Management of these fractures depends on timing of recognition, whether intraoperative or postoperative, and appropriate classification of the fracture namely the Vancouver classification for intraoperative fractures, which is dictated by fracture location, bone quality, and implant stability. Minimally displaced fractures at the calcar, or type A2 fractures, occur most often during broaching and are managed with removal of the broach, application of a cerclage wire around the fracture, followed by insertion of the implant. Weight-bearing does not need to be restricted postoperatively, as these minimally displaced calcar fractures are stable following cerclage wiring and implant placement. If implant stability is compromised or bone quality is poor, as in type A3 fractures, a long diaphyseal stem may be used to bypass the defect. Minimally displaced fractures at the implant tip discovered immediately postoperatively may be managed with touchdown weight bearing alone. Berry reviewed management of perioperative fractures during total hip arthroplasty. Minor cracks can be managed intraoperatively with cerclage fixation. Fractures noted postoperatively that do not affect Implant stability or femoral integrity may be successfully managed with limited weight-bearing and observation. Unstable implants or loss of femoral integrity require fracture fixation with either cerclage, struck grafts, plates, or conversion to a long stem implant. Zhao et al. investigated risk factors for intraoperative periprosthetic femoral fractures during cementless total arthroplasty a corral stem compared to synergy the anterolateral approach compared to posterolateral advanced age and a low metaphyseal diaphyseal index score or mdi score were associated with increased risk of fracture the mdi score was 25.89 plus or minus 8.11 in the fracture group versus 32.94 plus or minus 14.22 in the non fracture group with the p value of 0.016 all fractures were treated with cerclage wire application and cementless implant insertion followed by protected weight bearing postoperatively for six weeks with no revisions required. The correct answer to this question is 2. Apply cerclage wire, insert standard press fit stem, and weight bearing as tolerated postoperatively. Moving on to the next question. An orthopedic surgeon noticed a displaced calcar fracture during stem insertion when performing total arthroplasty using cementless fixation what is the most appropriate course of action? And the choices are one, intraoperative exploration to determine the extent of the fracture, two, use of a longer stem without fixation of the calcar fracture, three, complete insertion of the stem and measures to protect the patient against full weight bearing for four weeks, and four, removal of the stem, internal fixation of the fracture, and definitive reconstruction at a later stage after the fracture has healed. So calcar fractures can occur with both cemented and cementless stem fixation during surgery. The distal extent of the fracture must be identified either by direct visualization or intraoperative radiograph prior to fixation or implantation of the femoral component. The recommended treatment is to fix the calcar fracture with cerclage wire cables to restore the mechanical stability of the femoral metaphysis. The same stem can be inserted successfully. The majority of these fractures unite without adverse stem fixation problems. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Intraoperative exploration to determine the extent of the fracture. Moving on to the next question. A 68-year-old woman is undergoing a cementless medial-slash-lateral tapered femoral placement during a total arthroplasty, and the surgeon notices a small crack forming in the anteromedial femoral neck with final implant insertion. The most appropriate management should include which of the following. And the choices are 1. Placement of a cerclage cable around the femoral neck above the lesser trochanter. 2. Removal of the implant, placement of a cable around the femoral neck above the lesser trochanter and reinsertion of the implant. 3. Removal of the press fit implant and cementing of the same femoral stem. 4. Final seating of the cementless femoral component without additional measures. And 5. Removal of the cementless femoral component and placement of a revision modular taper fluted femoral stem. So the recognized treatment of the proximal periprosthetic fracture is first to identify its extent and then to optimize the correction. Removing the implant seems logical to accomplish the identification. Several studies indicate that proximal cerclage wiring is adequate to create a quote, barrel hoop stability of the proximal femur. The postoperative management may also include protected weight bearing and periodic radiographs. So the correct answer to this question is two, removal of the implant, placement of a cable around the femoral neck above the lesser trochanter and reinsertion of the implant. Moving on to the next question, during impaction of a cementless acetabular component, the posterior column was fractured and found to be displaced. Which of the following is considered the most appropriate surgical option? And the choices are one, exchange of the cementless cup to a larger component, two, retention of the component and bone grafting of the fracture, 3. Retention of the component and postoperative weight protection until the posterior column heals. 4. Removal of the cup, fixation of the posterior column, and application of an anti-protrusio cage. And 5. Removal of the cup and cementing of an all-polyethylene liner. So acetabular bone loss presents a challenge during reconstruction. A cementless hemispherical cup can be used in most patients provided that the acetabular rim, particularly the posterior column, is intact. When the posterior column is disrupted, fixation with a reconstruction plate and or the use of an anti-protrusio cage is recommended. The latter is particularly important when the posterior column is fractured and displaced such as in this patient. Under these circumstances, reduction of the fracture and application of an anti-protrusio cage is recommended. In this particular type of case, some surgeons may elect to retain the hemispherical cup and apply an anti-protrusio cage over the cup, otherwise known as the cage over cup technique. But the correct answer to this question is 4, removal of the cup, fixation of the posterior column, and application of an anti anti-protrusio cage. Moving on to the next question. During insertion of a cementless femoral stem, a non-displaced fracture is noticed along the femoral calcar. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in surgical management? And the choices are one, continued insertion of the stem, cerclage wiring around the fracture site and non-weight bearing for six weeks. Two, continued insertion of the stem, reduction of the hip and non-weight bearing activity restrictions following surgery. Three, removal of the stem, cerclage wiring around the fracture site and reinsertion of a stem. Four, removal of the stem and conversion to a cemented femoral stem. And five, removal of the stem, open reduction internal fixation of the femur with planned delayed femoral stem insertion following fracture healing. So appropriate care of an intraoperative fracture during total hip arthroplasty requires removal of the stem to adequately evaluate the fracture. The fracture should then be stabilized with cerclage wiring, and a long stem should be inserted to ensure stability of the stem in the postoperative period. So the correct answer to this question is three, removal of the stem, cerclage wiring around the fracture site, and reinsertion of a stem. Siridis et al. review the identification, classification, and management of intraoperative and postoperative periprosthetic hip fractures. Postoperative fractures around stable components may be treated with open surgical fixation. All intraoperative fractures should be considered inherently unstable and should be treated with a long stem that bypasses the femoral fracture as well as cerclage wiring. Moving on to the next question, A 78 year old female undergoes total hip arthroplasty through a minimally invasive surgical approach. During insertion of a metaphyseal fixation stem with a cementless press fit technique, a crack in the calcar is identified. The stem is removed, two cable wires are passed around the calcar, and the same stem is reinserted. Which of the following statements is true? And the choices are 1. The patient should be advised that she is at greater risk of stem subsidence and early revision. 2. Female sex is a risk factor for intraoperative calcar fracture. 3. A better outcome would be expected if a long stem diaphyseal fixation stem had been inserted after recognition of the calcar fracture. 4. Cementless press fit technique is not a risk factor for intraoperative fracture. And 5. Minimally invasive surgical approach is not a risk factor for intraoperative fracture. So of the statements listed, the only true statement is that female gender is a risk factor for intraoperative calcar fracture. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Female sex is a risk factor for intraoperative calcar fracture. Calcar fractures are a documented complication of total hip arthroplasty. Studies have shown that successful outcomes can be achieved with stem removal, cable wiring of the calcar, and reinsertion of the primary stem. Berend et al. reviewed a series of 58 total hip arthroplasties who sustained an intraoperative calcar fracture. All were treated with cable wiring of the calcar and stem insertion. The authors report no femoral component subsidence or failure otherwise at 16-year follow-up. GRAW et al. review a series of 46 revision total hip arthroplasties. Of the 46, 15 underwent primary total hip arthroplasty through a minimally invasive technique. The average length of time from primary total hip arthroplasty to revision was 1.4 years for the minimally invasive group versus 14.7 years for the traditional exposure total hip arthroplasties. The authors conclude minimally invasive total hip arthroplasty is a risk for early revision. Davidson et al. review intraoperative periprosthetic hip fractures. Risk factors for intraoperative periprosthetic fractures include the use of minimally invasive techniques, the use of press-fit cementless stems, revision operations, especially when a long cementless stem is used or when a short stem with impaction allografting is used female sex, metabolic bone disease, bone diseases leading to altered morphology such as Paget's disease, and technical errors at the time of operation. The authors summarize techniques for treatment and postulate that long-term outcome is unaffected when the intraoperative fracture is identified and treated appropriately. Moving on to the next question, A non-displaced periprosthetic small posterior wall acetabular fracture is noted intraoperatively during total hip arthroplasty. The acetabular component is stable and well-fixed after implantation of an ingrowth acetabular shell during intraoperative examination. Which of the following treatment options will best maintain motion and clinical function? And the choices are 1. ORIF of the posterior column and THA revision 2. Cage reconstruction of acetabular component 3. THA revision using a cemented acetabular component. 4. Placement of a hip abductor brace and non-weight bearing in the affected limb. And 5. No change in treatment. So acetabular fracture during total hip arthroplasty is a known complication that typically occurs during acetabular component impaction. If noticed intra-op, the stability of the component should be assessed by the surgeon to determine treatment. If the component is stable, no additional treatment is necessary. If the acetabular component is unstable, then it should be changed and or supplemented with component screws until stability is obtained. The article by Hydukowicz showed no need for acetabular fixation after fracture as long as the acetabular component was deemed stable. In their 7,121 cases studied, they had a fracture rate of 0.4% and a high rate of fracture with elliptical monoblock cups. All fractures healed and the acetabular components achieved ingrowth without migration. So the correct answer to this question is 5, no change in treatment. And the final question for this topic, a non-displaced fracture of the proximal medial femoral neck proximal to the lesser trochanter is noted at the time of insertion of a cementless tapered wedge type femoral component in a total hip arthroplasty. Appropriate perioperative management should include which of the following? And the choices are 1, cerclage cable placed proximal to the lesser trochanter with partial weight bearing for 6 weeks postoperatively. 2. No intraoperative or postoperative modifications are necessary. 3. Non-weight bearing for 6 weeks, retention of the femoral component and no cerclage wire. 4. Fracture exploration and repair with multiple cerclage cables, strut allograft, and revision of the femoral component with a long stemmed implant. And 5. Revision with a cemented implant. So the fracture should be explored in its entirety. If it remains in the inner trochanteric region, a single cerclage cable passed above the lesser trochanter and tightened around the femoral component is appropriate. A more distal or displaced fracture should be repaired with cerclage cables and consideration for revision of the femoral component with a long-stemmed or cemented implant should be given. So the correct answer to this question is one, cerclage cable placed proximal to the lesser trochanter with partial weight bearing for six weeks postoperatively. And moving on to the final topic for this review session of hallux valgus, the first question reads Which of the following preoperative measurements would call for surgical plan involving both a proximal first metatarsal osteotomy and a distal medial closing wedge osteotomy? And the choices are one, a hallux valgus angle of thirty, an intermetatarsal angle of ten, a hallux valgus interphalangeous angle of eight, and a congruent MTP joint. Two, hallux valgus angle of thirty, intermetatarsal angle of sixteen, Halux valgus interphalangeus angle of fourteen and an incongruent MTP. Three, a hallux valgus angle of forty five, an intermetatarsal angle of twelve, a halx valgus interphalangeus angle of eight, and a DMAA of eight. Four a hallux valgus angle of thirty, an intermetatarsal angle of sixteen, a hallux valgus interphalangeus of eight, and a DMAA of sixteen. And five, a hallux valgus angle of forty five, an intermetatarsal angle of 16, and a hallux valgus interphalangeus of 14 with an incongruent MTP. So, a patient with an intermetatarsal angle of greater than 13 degrees and a congruent MTP with a DMAA, that is a distal metatarsal articular angle, of greater than 10 degrees, would call for a surgical plan involving a proximal first metatarsal osteotomy to correct the intermetatarsal angle and a distally based medial closing wedge osteotomy to correct the DMAA. So, the correct answer to this question is 4 a hallux valgus angle of 30, an intermetatarsal angle of 16, a hallux valgus interphalangeus angle of 8, and a DMAA of 16. So the correction of moderate to severe hallux valgus can present as a treatment challenge, and there are controversies as to whether single, double, or triple osteotomies should be utilized. Hallux valgus deformities are congruent when the articular surface of the first metatarsal head matches the articular surface of the base of the proximal phalanx, necessitating an increased DMAA. If the DMAA is not corrected and the proximal phalanx is reduced to a neutral position, then the joint will become incongruent, which increases the risk for stiffness, pain, and recurrence of deformity. Smith et al. present a series of patients with increased DMAA using double and triple osteotomies. They note that correcting the orientation of the articular surface is most commonly done with a medially based closing wedge osteotomy of the distal aspect of the first metatarsal. This reorients the articular surface into a neutral position, thus correcting the DMAA. Siegman et al. present 32 patients who underwent operative correction of hallux valgus with a double osteotomy of the first metatarsal using an opening wedge proximally and a closing wedge distally. They note good overall results with a low complication rate and conclude that this approach has clear advantages over isolated opening wedge procedures, including potentially better correction, especially in those bunions associated with an increased distal metatarsal articular angle. Moving on to the next question. When performing a bunionectomy with a release of the lateral soft tissue structures, the surgeon is cautioned against releasing the conjoined tendon that inserts along the lateral base of the proximal phalanx of the gray toe. This conjoined tendon is made up of what two muscles? And the choices are one, flexor hallucis longus and flexor hallucis brevis; two, flexor hallucis longus and adductor hallucis; three, flexor hallucis brevis and adductor hallucis; four, flexor hallucis longus and abductor hallucis; and five, flexor hallucis brevis and abductor hallucis. So Owens and Thordardson caution surgeons not to release the conjoined tendon from the base of the proximal phalanx of the great toe because of an increased risk of iatrogenic hallux varus. Release of the transverse and oblique heads of the adductor hallucis is largely accomplished by releasing the soft tissue adjacent to the lateral sesamoid without releasing tissue from the base of the proximal phalanx. The conjoined tendon is made up of the flexor hallucis brevis and the adductor hallucis making 3, flexor hallucis brevis and adductor hallucis the correct answer to this question. Moving on to the next question. A 32-year-old female patient with hallux valgus underwent a proximal first metatarsal osteotomy with distal soft tissue release. What preoperative radiographic measurements for hallux valgus was most likely for this surgical technique to be utilized in terms of a hallux valgus angle, 1, 2 intermetatarsal angle, and distal metatarsal articular angle? And the choices are one, a hallux valgus angle of thirty, an intermetatarsal angle of nine, and a distal metatarsal articular angle of sixteen. Two, a hallux valgus angle of twenty-five, an intermetatarsal angle of ten, and a distal metatarsal articular angle of eight, three, a hallux valgus angle of thirty-five, an intermetatarsal angle of nine, and a distal metatarsal articular angle of ten. 4. A hallux valgus angle of 35, an intermetatarsal angle of 16, and a distal metatarsal articular angle of 10. And 5. A hallux valgus angle of 50, an intermetatarsal angle of 18, and a distal metatarsal articular angle of 15. So a proximal first metatarsal osteotomy with distal soft tissue release is indicated in moderate to severe hallux valgus deformity, that is a hallux valgus angle of 26 to 40, as well as an increased intermetatarsal angle of greater than 13, and a congruent distal metatarsal articular angle or a DMAA of less than 15. So the correct answer to this question is 4, a hallux valgus angle of 35, an intermetatarsal angle of 16, and a distal metatarsal articular angle of 10. Hallux valgus deformities that require surgical correction are indicated in symptomatic patients with an intermetatarsal angle of greater than 10 degrees and a hallux valgus angle of greater than 20 degrees. Distal metatarsal osteotomies are typically performed in patients with mild disease that is characterized as a hallux valgus angle of less than 40 degrees and an intermetatarsal angle of less than 13 degrees. Biplanar distal osteotomies are indicated when the distal metatarsal articular angle is greater than 15. Proximal osteotomies are indicated when the intermetatarsal angle is greater than 13 degrees. Easily et al. used a prospectively randomized study to compare the outcomes of 1. proximal crescenteric or 2. proximal chevron osteotomy for the correction of moderate to severe hallux valgus deformity with associated metatarsus primus varus. They found that the proximal chevron osteotomy group had faster times to union and a tendency towards less shortening of the first metatarsal. Dreben et al. looked at a series of 28 cases with a moderate to severe hallux valgus deformity and intermetatarsal angle of 14 degrees or greater. All feats were treated with a distal soft tissue procedure and proximal metatarsal osteotomy. The average correction of the intermetatarsal angle was 13.2 degrees, and the average loss of correction was 1.4 degrees. The average correction of the hallux valgus angle was 26.7 degrees, and the average loss of correction was 3.8 degrees. Moving on to the next question. Following a chevron bunionectomy performed through a dorsal approach, a patient has persistent numbness on the dorsal and medial aspect of the hallux. What nerve has most likely been injured? And the choices are 1. Lateral plantar nerve, 2. Deep peroneal nerve, 3. Dural nerve, 4. Medial plantar nerve, and 5. Dorsal medial cutaneous nerve of the hallux. So the dorsal medial cutaneous nerve of the hallux, which is a distal branch of the superficial perineal nerve, supplies sensation to the skin on the dorsal and medial half of the hallux and may be injured during a chevron bunionectomy. Injury to the nerve leads to particularly painful neuromas that directly impinge on the shoe. For this reason, direct medial approaches are typically preferred for access to the medial aspect of the metatarsophalangeal joint. So the correct answer to this question is 5, dorsal medial cutaneous nerve of the hallux. Moving on to the next question, when the great toe deviates into a valgus position, the action of the abductor halicis muscle becomes one of, and the choices are 1, increased abduction, 2, pronation, 3, flexion, 4, flexion and pronation, and 5, extension. So the abductor hallucis muscle inserts together with the medial tendon of the flexor hallucis brevis into the medial base of the proximal phalanx of the great toe. When the hallux assumes a valgus position, the action of the abductor becomes one of flexion and pronation of the first metatarsal. So the correct answer to this question is four, flexion and pronation. Moving on to the next question. Preservation or reconstruction of which of the following structures is essential to minimize the risk of hallux valgus developing after removal of part or all of the medial sesamoid? And the choices are one, flexor hallucis longus tendon. 2 flexor hallucis brevis tendon, 3 abductor hallucis tendon, 4 adductor hallucis tendon, and 5 extensor hallucis brevis tendon. So complications of medial sesamoidectomy include stiffness, claw toe and hallux valgus. Each sesamoid sits within its respective head of the flexor hallucis brevis tendon. Excision of one sesamoid can result in slack in its flexor hallucis brevis tendon. Therefore, it is imperative to preserve or repair the flexor hallucis brevis tendon when removing the medial sesamoid. So the correct answer to this question is 2, flexor hallucis brevis tendon. Moving on to the next question. When performing a wild osteotomy of a lesser metatarsal, the desired angle of the saw cut should be approximately, and the choices are 1, perpendicular to the shaft of the metatarsal, 2. Parallel with the inclination of the metatarsal. 3. Parallel with the plantar surface of the foot. 4. 45 degrees to the shaft of the metatarsal. And 5. 10 degrees to the shaft of the metatarsal. So appropriate orientation of the saw cut when performing a while osteotomy is approximately parallel with the plantar surface of the foot. This is done in an effort to minimize plantar displacement of the capital fragment. The removal of additional bone from the osteotomy site, either by removing a separate wafer of bone or using a thicker saw blade, has also been described to minimize plantar displacement of the distal fragment. So the correct answer to this question is 3, parallel with the plantar surface of the foot. Moving on to the next question. Recurrence of hallux valgus deformity after corrective surgery has been shown to be related to which of the following? And the choices are 1 inversely correlated with presence of a bipartite fibular sesamoid, 2. associated with residual increased tibial sesamoid displacement, 3. associated with squared lateral first metatarsal shape, 4. unrelated to preoperative intermetatarsal angle, and 5. unrelated to preoperative hallux valgus angle. So Okuda and associates have studied the factors associated with the recurrence of hallux valgus deformity following correction with proximal first metatarsal osteotomy. The factors that they found associated with recurrence of deformity postoperatively are a rounded shape to the lateral first metatarsal head, severe lateral displacement of the tibial sesamoid, an increased preoperative 1-2 intermetatarsal angle, and an increased preoperative hallux valgus angle. The reported rate of recurrence of deformity after proximal first metatarsal osteotomy is 4% to 11%. So the correct answer to this question is 2, associated with residual increased tibial sesamoid displacement. And moving on to the final question for this review session, which of the following clinical scenarios regarding hallux valgus could be appropriately treated with a modified McBride procedure? And the choices are 1, 35-year-old female with a 20-degree hallux valgus angle, an 11-degree intermetatarsal angle, and an incongruent first metatarsal phalangeal joint. 2, a 40-year-old male with a 30-degree hallux valgus angle, a 15-degree intermetatarsal angle, and a congruent first MTP joint. 3. 70-year-old female with a 35-degree hallux valgus angle, a 13-degree intermetatarsal angle with a hypermobile first ray, 4. 65-year-old female with a 25-degree hallux valgus angle, a 14-degree intermetatarsal angle, and severe hallux rigidus, and 5. 85-year-old minimally ambulatory male with a 45-degree hallux valgus angle and a 20-degree intermetatarsal angle. So the modified McBride procedure is indicated in patients 30 to 50 years old with an incongruent joint, a hallux valgus angle of less than 25 degrees, and an intermetatarsal angle deformity less than 15 degrees. This soft tissue procedure should be avoided in moderate or severe hallux valgus deformity due to the increased risk of recurrence. Surgical technique includes release of adductor hallucis, transverse metatarsal ligament, and the lateral capsule combined with the excision of the medial eminence and plication of the capsule medially. In patients with moderate hallux valgus deformity, that is the hallux valgus angle of 26 to 40 degrees and the intermetatarsal angle of 13 to 15 degrees, a proximal osteotomy should be performed. In patients with moderate deformity and a hypermobile first ray, a lapidus procedure, which includes a first TMT fusion, should be considered. An MTP arthrodesis is indicated when concomitant severe hallux rigidus is present, and a Keller osteotomy, which includes a partial resection of the proximal phalanx, should be considered in an elderly low-demand individual with severe deformity. So the correct answer to this question is 1, a 35-year-old female with a 20-degree hallux valgus angle, an 11-degree intermetatarsal angle, and an incongruent first metatarsal phalangeal joint. That's all for this question review session about THA periprosthetic fractures and hallux valgus. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.